morning, everyone. Good, good to see you all. Um, welcome to Resurrection City Church. Uh, great to see so many people in person today. And also, for those of you who are watching online, uh, thanks for joining us. And as Julie mentioned, if you're new, um, just glad you're here and, and checking us out. Um, my name is Miles Trump. I am not one of the pastors here. I am a member of Resurrection City. I uh, serve on the leadership team here, and then also serve on the pastoral care team at Resurrection City. And my family and I have been a part of the church since it launched a couple of years ago. Um, like many, we came from Hope Community Church, and uh, this is our home now, and we're really glad to be here. So um, I'm really happy to be here preaching on Philippians and talking about uh, uh, something I'm really passionate about, which is unity. Uh, but a little bit more about me before I dive in. So I am a, a Minnesota native. I was born in Minneapolis. I grew up in Mankato. Um, my family and I, we live in Roseville today, uh, so not too far from here. Uh, and for my day job for work, I work in corporate communications at Medtronic, um, where I do inclusion, diversity, and equity work, which is something that I'm really passionate about as well. Um, this is a picture of my family. This is my wife, Lisa, and our two daughters. Uh, the closest to me is Naomi. She is three years old, and Maya is 10 months old. And um, I want to start here because I have realized that I've learned quite a bit about God through my family and through becoming a parent over the last several years. And so Maya was born in August of 2020 during the pandemic, and so we figured out how to become a family of four during the pandemic, which is maybe not something I recommend. It went fine, um, uh, but uh, we, were sta we stayed healthy. Um, but before becoming a family of four, um, our daughter Naomi was about uh, two years old at the time when we knew we were going to have Maya, and we weren't necessarily sure how she was going to take an addition to the family and having less time and attention focused on her. But from the moment that we brought her home from the hospital, Naomi just fell in love and just absolutely adores Maya. Um, and as they've grown closer together over the last 10 months, um, we've just seen some things where you can see how clearly Naomi cares and how deeply committed she is to her sister. So some examples. Uh, if Naomi ever notices that Maya is by like a sharp corner or an edge where she could fall or has a toy she's not supposed to have, she will literally drop things and sprint over to help her and to help protect her. And when Maya needs to be cheered up, Naomi will start, she'll break out into song, songs that she knows Maya really likes. Um, to get her to just feel happier. And sometimes she'll even give her like her prize possession, which is this like pacifier that has a little animal connected to it. She'll give that to Maya, um, which for, for, Na for Naomi, that means quite a bit. When they're riding in the car together, Naomi will make silly faces and silly noise at Maya from her car seat to try to distract her from being uncomfortable in her car seat. And when Maya cries, Sometimes Naomi will cry with her in solidarity, um, which is very interesting, but I appreciate the empathy. Um, 
And I think Maya really loves all of this care from her sister. Uh, but what I've also noticed is that Naomi gets a lot from it. When she goes to these great lengths to care for her sister, she receives a lot of joy from it. And it comes from a place of deep love and deep commitment. And so um, as I was preparing for this sermon today, it struck me that um, this sisterly bond has some parallels between what Paul is going to be calling the Philippian church to, um, which is a deep unity in which we go to great lengths and sometimes incomprehensible lengths to the rest of the world um, for one another and to care for one another. And it's really based upon and rooted in our identity in Christ. Uh, so before I dive in, uh, just love to pray. You can pray with me. Dear Lord, uh, we just thank you for, for being good, Lord, for loving us and giving us grace. And we thank you for showing us um, what unity means, Lord. And so we pray as um, we just open up the Bible today and we dig through Philippians that you would help teach us how you want us to live. Help us to hear you and help us to learn about the, the unity in the church that you want for us and how we should live it out, Lord. Okay, so um, just a little bit of context. Um, where have we been? We know that uh, we know that Paul, in the letter uh, to the Philippians, is imprisoned at the time that he's writing to the church. We know that he feels a uh, a deep friendship or partnership with the church, and he wants to encourage them in that. Um, we know that the church has, in that mutual partnership, given Paul some money to sustain him and support him in his work of advancing the gospel. And um, also in the letter, we know that Paul is detailing some of his own struggles, uh, being in prison, trying to continue to advance the gospel, and his mission to spread the gospel. And so in the section of the letter that we're going to talk about today, um, he now begins to really encourage the Philippian church in to behave similarly in their own struggles. And namely, it's any sort of opposition that they might be facing. And so when I read this, what I hear is that he's, he's calling the church to what I would call like a radical unity um, that requires some bold actions and behaviors uh, that are modeled and based upon Jesus and that uh, there are lessons for all of us in this part of the letter. So I'm going to go ahead and um, I'm going to read it. It's a long passage, so bear with me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. 
Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there is quite um, a bit here, and I'm going to sort of walk through the text, make some kind of big points or big observations and dive a little deeper into them, and then uh, talk a little bit about what it means for us, what it can mean for us at Resurrection City. And so really the big point I want to, um, I think Paul is telling the Philippian church early on is that the church is called to a life of radical unity. And I think that there is a few different ways that Paul is calling the Philippians to live in this unity. So I'm going to walk through a few of those as we walk through the text. So the first, unity in identity. So Paul is encouraging the Philippians to live in unity in their identity as citizens of heaven or in their identity in Christ. And so he starts off by saying, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And what's interesting is that when Paul uses the term for conduct yourselves, um, what it actually means or refers to in the language is citizenship. And so Philippi was a, a Roman colony, meaning the citizens there were also Roman citizens. And uh, they were known actually to pride themselves on being Roman citizens. So they dressed like Romans did. Um, they spoke in Latin like Romans did. And I think that um, we can kind of understand the pride that they maybe have in their homeland. Because I think we have some of that here um, in the United States. There's not a shortage of patriotism in our country. Um, when I was in second grade, every Friday morning, we would stand up at our desks and our teacher would play uh, Lee Greenwood's Proud to be an American and we would sing along to it as an example. And um, I'm not going to sing it today, but I promise you that I still know like every single word from that experience. Um, and it wasn't just my classroom. There was a study done a few years ago that found that 85% of Americans feel that the U.S. either stands above all other countries in the world or it's one of the greatest countries among others. And I think we, we can see it like in celebrations last Sunday where we celebrated Independence Day, uh, which is a holiday that really symbolizes some of our patriotism. And so I think we understand having pride um, in our homeland. Um, but Paul isn't simply telling the Philippians to be great citizens of this Roman colony. He's reminding them that they have an even greater citizenship in God's kingdom. 
And to be a worthy citizen of God's kingdom, they need to lead lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. Lives in which they acknowledge that Jesus is the one true king and Lord, and that he's also the model for how we live our lives. Paul actually later in Philippians returns to this very idea where he uses citizenship to sort of appeal, but he reminds them, but our citizenship is in heaven. I think Paul is also encouraging the Philippians to live in unity in suffering. So he says, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. It's a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So in this passage, Paul is really encouraging the church to live a life of unity. He talks about standing firm and striving together as one, but through the suffering that they are either going through or may go through in the not-so-distant future. We, know, we don't know exactly what the, the suffering of the church is or what the, where the opposition is, but there's enough in the verses that sort of show that there is some opposition and that there is some suffering that's taking place um, for Christ. And so he tells them, band together, united in your belief in Jesus, um, and that to weather this storm without fear. And let the Holy Spirit sort of enable you, push you forward together as one for the gospel. I think what's interesting, what Paul doesn't say, is he does not tell them to try to escape or avoid their suffering. He doesn't say, do what you need to do as a church to avoid suffering. Um, he assumes that suffering will happen and that the Christian life not only involves faith, but it involves suffering. And in fact, he says suffering for Christ um, is a gift or a privilege of being a Christian. Um, there are other parts of the Bible where we've heard this message. Um, in Acts, the apostles, um, in Acts 5, the apostles leave and they rejoice because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for Jesus. Um, and in Colossians, Paul himself says, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. So there's something about our suffering that's critical to the walk that we're on, and that can bring glory to God. And Paul is saying, stand in that together. Strive together as one for the gospel without being frightened by that, um, because it's a sign that you will be saved. I like uh, this this um, uh, quote by this commentator named Moises Silva, what he's doing is, he says in his commentary, this, this could be a way that you could paraphrase what Paul is saying to the Philippian church. The conflicts you are experiencing may appear frightening and thus threaten to discourage you, but you cannot allow that to happen. Perhaps you are tempted to interpret these conflicts as a bad omen, as though God is displeased with you and intends to destroy you. But that is exactly wrong. You must interpret what is happening as evidence of God's design to save you. Why? Because suffering is the way to glory, God's gift of salvation for his children. 
So Paul is telling them this, and he's also reminding them that the way forward through this suffering is together. The last uh, kind of way that I think Paul is um, calling the Philippian church to unity is with a humility. So what he does here is he just keeps talking about unity over and over and over again. Unity, unity, unity. And he keeps saying it in different ways. He says, he's kind of describing a shared experience among Christians. That if you get encouragement from being united with Christ, the result of your personal relationship with Jesus, that if you get comfort from his love, or that confidence that comes from knowing that God loves you and you are saved, and you are credited righteousness as a result of that, if you have common sharing in the Spirit, so if you have fellowship with others um, that's produced by the Holy Spirit, and if you, have, uh, if you experience tenderness and compassion or that caring for one another as the result of our faith, then, he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. So he keeps going back to this theme of unity. But he makes an important point here. Um, he calls the church to be humble and signals that humility is one of the keys to this unity that they're trying to achieve. I think that uh, humility can be a difficult concept for us at times. Um, I think today we see a lot of things that could be like humble brags and false humility. Um, not all that different from Dwight, for any of you who are fans of The Office. And I think these things are they are often statements or actions that are sort of couched in an inauthentic humility. And it's often about drawing more attention to yourself than it is about um, being truly humble. And I think false humility can stem from sort of feelings of inadequacy, not really fully knowing your worth. And it's really more focused on you. It's about you than it is anyone else. And that's actually what Paul is guarding against when he talks about humility. He's signaling that um, his concerns and his encouragement to the church is not as much about disagreements in the church as it is about um, self-centeredness or being self-focused in the church. And so he says it in a couple of ways to like really drive home the point. He says, do nothing, uh, to do nothing um, for your selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility value others above yourselves. And he says, don't look to your own interest, but each of you to interests of others. And so these are pretty clear instructions for displaying humility um, among each other. So that's what I would call um, big point number one. I would say it's he's calling the Philippians to a radical kind of unity that's through identity, our identity as followers of Christ, um, through suffering for Christ, and through or with a humility that really marks their unity. And I think the second big point um, that Paul is making um, in the latter part of the text is that Jesus is both the source of this. He is what unites us. And he also gives us the model for how to do this. He's the model for the church's radical unity. So Paul's been in this earlier passage is really telling the Philippians how to live. 
And now he's going to draw a parallel between that guidance that he's giving and how Jesus lived. So everything that Paul has been saying is really uh, building up to where he's going in verses 5 through 11. And like any great pastor, he's pointing the church back to Jesus as both the source and the model for what he wants them to do. And so that's how he starts. He starts the next verse by just saying exactly that. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Again, very clear instructions. And in a moment, he's going to talk about what that mindset is. But before we dive into that, I want to just give a little pause and give just a little bit of background. What Paul does here is a little bit different um, in this part of the text than it is anywhere else in the text. Verses 2, 6 through 11, they actually appear to be either part of a hymn or a poem. And it's not clear if Paul wrote it originally or if he took parts of it from something that was already existing and modified it. But what is clear is that Paul is using this, we'll call it a hymn for our sake, for our purposes, this hymn as sort of the model for Christian humility that then leads to the kind of unity that he's calling the church to. And so he's taking this story of Christ's humility and is relaying it into a broader narrative about how he hopes the church will live. It's kind of brilliant about, about how he's kind of getting after it. And so I actually want to spend uh, time rereading this because I think it's really, it's really important and very profound. Who, so it says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So many of us know the story of Jesus. Uh, I think it's something that we feel like we kind of understand. But I think if we kind of think for a moment about what the sort of decisions and actions and behaviors that he took, um, we'll kind of, we'll see that it was pretty radical. So example, like Christ did not choose to take advantage of the fact that he was equal with God. He didn't use that to his advantage. But instead, he actually made himself what they say is nothing. He made himself not only a man, a human, but among the lowest in the culture, a servant. And as a servant, he obeyed the will of the Father so much so that he gave his life on a cross to obey, to be part of that obedience. And he did that for us sinners who are not deserving so that we could have salvation. That's a pretty, those are some pretty radical actions. Um, I really like this quote from a guy named Michael Gorman. And he says that Paul here, telling the Philippians, he interprets Christ's death not only as an act of love, but as an act of voluntary obedience. And he expects such voluntary obedience to be the pattern of believers' existence too. It's a pretty high bar to, to reach, right? 
But again, Paul is showing us that Christ's humility, his obedience, his sacrifice are the model. They're what all brought us together as a church in the first place, but they're also a model for how we can move forward and have this unity that will ultimately bring glory to God. So let's continue on uh, for the last couple of verses here. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, of God the Father. So as a result of his obedience, God the Father exalts Jesus to the highest place and makes him Lord, and it's for the glory of the Father. The language in this verse um, actually has some echoes of Isaiah 45. Um, so Isaiah 45, 23 says, By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity, a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. And this text appears in a part of Isaiah where the God of Israel, Yahweh, is proclaiming that he is the one true God. And so by using echoes of Isaiah 45 with the Philippians, Paul is really reinforcing that God is taking this very lordship that we see in Isaiah and giving it to Jesus. And as a result, he's showing that there isn't a greater model that we should be following for the type of life that we should lead as Christians or the type of behavior that we should have as there is in Jesus. So again, for the Philippians, um, he's both the reason they're unified, but he's also the model for remaining in unity. Um, I'm going to show another um, Michael J. Gorman quote one more time here, because um, I think this one is also spot on. I think it really sums up what Paul is getting at and what he's calling the church to. To possess the mind or disposition that Paul wants the Philippians to have then involves not merely attitudes, but actions, and actions of a rather radical sort. Just as Christ chose between self-interest and self-emptying or self-humbling, so too the Philippians must choose between selfish ambition and high regard for others, between empty self-glory and humility, between their own interests and those of others. So, what conclusions can we draw from this? I'm sure, for those of you who are listening, you've probably drawn some already um, about what it means to live in this particular unity. I think um, as people who live in this world, there are a lot of reasons or ways why we could be people who are divided. Uh, there are, you just look outside, I think you all know this, there are deep political divisions that separate people. There are things like systemic racism that separate people, social issues, religious differences, geographic differences, class. You can, this list can just go on and on and on. Even within the church, there are a lot of ways we could be divided. Theological differences, differences in what we think the mission of the church should be, style of the way the church, church services are held, location, how the church gets involved in social issues or not. All of these things can be 
um, contentious. And I think there's a pressure uh, in this, in our particular culture, that we have to kind of have a stance and a position, and that opinions are um, really, really highly valued. But I think what Paul, in his writing to the Philippian church, I think one of the things we can draw from it is that it should encourage us to really build bridges across these differences, across these gaps, across the places where there are division, so that we can ultimately remain in this unity and unified as a church. And so as citizens of heaven, then, we have to keep the mindset and actions of Jesus as both the source of what binds us, what brings us together, but also the model for how we remain unified. And so I just think that there's three ways, there's a million ways we could do this, but three ways that I would like to draw attention to for us that we as a church might be able to do that. The first is humble ourselves. So like Christ humbled himself, was obedient, was sacrificial to the point of becoming a servant to die on a cross for us, we also need to humble ourselves. Again, that's a high bar, right, to reach. But that's the bar, that's the model that's been set for us. And that's a kind of radical way of um, looking at humility. But Paul gives us some pretty clear guidance and says, we need to put the needs of others over ourselves. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a great quote on this. Uh, he says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. So it's not thinking less of yourself, like, oh, I don't deserve this, or I'm not worthy, or I'm a bad person because of this. It is just simply thinking of yourself less or thinking of others more. And again, I think this can potentially be a real risk for us in this society, where we sort of, our society, our culture values individualism and competition and winning and sort of putting yourself first. But that's not what we are being called to. So I would just say, for those of you who are in church sitting in the pews today, just take like a moment to just look around. Just look around at some of the other people around you. If you're watching us, um, think about someone that you know. And ask yourself, what would it look like to humble ourselves in a way that we would put the person you just saw or you just looked at or you just thought about above our own needs? What kind of church would we be? What kind of unity what might we all find as a result of that? Number two, suffer together. Part of our call as a church is to stand together through our suffering. I think um, Paul makes that very clear. Um, we might not be facing the same kind of opposition um, as the Philippian church presumably was, but I think there's a sense of real suffering in our society. We've been through a lot as a country in the last 18 months, two years, whatever time limit you want to put on it. Um, we've been through quite a bit. And we've seen examples of things that we maybe haven't seen before, like a rise in national sort of mental health crisis, um, mental health really declining across our country. That's just one of the many ways that I think people have felt a real suffering. And I'd be willing to wager that 
that people that you either looked at or thought about or people who are in our church have also felt some suffering in some way, shape, or form. And even if it's not the same kind of suffering for Christ, it may and it could have the potential to impact our relationship with Christ. And so we're called to suffer together. I really like um, how Paul writes about this in Corinthians, where he uses the metaphor of the church as a body and says that there's different parts that have different abilities and different functions. But when you come together, it's this beautiful image of God's people who are bringing glory to God. And he writes that if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And I think what he's saying here is there's a real interdependence among us um, as Christians that our stories are distinct and valued for being distinct, but also valued for being woven together in what we share. And so when we hear about others in the church who are suffering, um, our posture, I think, should be to lean into that, not shy away from it. And that we recognize that uh, the suffering of our brothers and sisters is part of our own humanity. And so we don't shy away from it, but we lean in to listen, we lean in to help, we lean in to support and to care. Just a note here that um, I just want to say, if anyone is suffering right now, I would just really encourage you um, to come talk to us. You can come talk to me. You can come talk to our pastors. Talk to if you're involved in a community group. Um, but we're designed to be able to do this together. And that's part of the way that we bring glory to God. And so I would just really encourage you that if you feel it's safe to share um, with someone that you trust within the church, you can help. And the last part, um, the last way I think we can do this is to pursue unity. So one uh, commentator wrote that Paul is trying to encourage the Philippians to have a sort of tenacity, is the word that he uses, about their responsibilities as Christians. In other words, that there's a persistence and a perseverance that Christians need in order to live out this walk that we're called to. And that as citizens of heaven or of followers of Christ, we should be facing these things within the fellowship of our community. So one of our values at Resurrection City is actually living in community. And if you read it, um, which you can on the website, it says that we live out our transformed lives together in unity so that we can encourage and challenge one another to live in light of our newness in Christ. I think that we should have that same mindset of tenacity and persistence of pursuing that unity within our church. And it means that our identity in Christ would commit us to doing that and that we would persevere through the things that we struggle through and that might seek to divide us. So to close, um, I think it's important to say the only way that any of this is possible is through Jesus and the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross. 
he emptied himself, he humbled himself to save us. And in doing so, he united us in ways that we couldn't be united in any other way, in him and through him. And he also just then gave us the roadmap or the blueprint for how to remain united and continue to pursue that unity. I think uh, I call it radical because I think it's very countercultural. Like I mentioned, I think we're marked by individualism and competition and division. And a world that values those things might not always understand why we act the way we do. But we were talking about this in our community group the other night. Um, and I got to credit Drew Elric for mentioning this, that that should be a mark of our success, that we're living radical unity together as a church and putting it on full display to the rest of the world, um, that we would root our identity, our suffering, our humility in something far greater than ourselves and really show the world that we're united because of that. And the hope would be that along the way, we we are changed because of that. We know Christ better. We are redeemed. But also that people would see that and more people would say, hey, maybe I need to check out what this Jesus has in store for me too. So please pray with me. Dear Lord, we just, um, we thank you, Lord, for the ways that you love us, the ways that you guide us, the ways that you have um, shown us what radical love and living looks like. We want to uh, thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for us when we did not deserve it, Lord, but that your love would be so great for us that you would do that to save us and that you would show us the way, that you would give us the model for unity. And I pray, Lord, that as a church, we can live up to that calling. We're not always going to get it right, but I pray that there would be grace for us when we fail and stumble and that we wouldn't let it be a stumbling block to us, but that we would continue to humble ourselves, to suffer together, and to pursue unity together. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.